Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. another edition of the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. In Los Angeles, California, I'm the professor, Matt Perkins. And joining us straight out of the film room in Nashville, Tennessee, it's the coach, Corey Burton. Well, it's, uh, it's Labor Day and we're out there. For, got, uh, we got an important, pivotal uh, game this week to make sure we can uh, get on the right side of the win column this year and uh, you know, be our first win of the year. We're, we're off to a sluggish start, but we're trying, we're fighting hard to turn things around, so we're working hard at it and trying to find some answers. But you know what? There's some other teams that got to find some answers, too, and we're going to talk about them. All right. Well, uh, finally, it's the third amigo in the second city, a man who watched, has watched Blazing Saddles more times than he can <laughs> count and did it one more time this past week. It's our intrepid blogger from Big Ten and Counting, Josh Cook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, before we dive into everything, I actually had a super quick two questions that I wanted to pose to you guys, and both stemming, oddly, from the Minnesota football game. Uh, so the first is late stages. Minnesota scored a touchdown to go up 30-23. to 23. There's about 90 seconds left. They went for two. And I feel like I'm a pretty aggressive person thinking about, like, when to go for it on fourth and stuff. But that seemed like a little bit too much because the odds of completing a two-point conversion are lower the other thing from that game is Minnesota had three players ejected. And I think the targeting penalty has gotten us away from the malicious dirty hit. And now it's kind of like almost a fluke play. And I'm wondering what you guys think of having a two stage where uh, you get the 15 yards and a warning. And then if you get a second targeting, then you're ejected. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, all right, I'll, I'll jump in first, obviously. Uh, on the targeting deal, um, I, I, you know, I'm trying to figure out what the point of the the review is. If you're going to just go ahead and eject the player, I, you know, I, I think that, you know, you review it. Maybe you give the penalty. You, re, you review it, and just see what what it is. If it's, you know, you just really kind of look at it and, and, and base it. You could just kind of treat it as any other play that's under review. Hey, this play is under further review. We think it's targeting. Blah 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 blah. Whatever you want to say. You come out, if it's a malicious hit, bam, they're gone. No questions asked. All right? If it's one of those that, you know, they just bad luck, you know, he's coming across the middle, and he just happens to hit him uh, in the wrong spot, 15 yards, you warn him. If it happens again, bam, they're out. Or if, if you see that it's a good, clean, legitimate hit and it's not a targeting, then you just say, uh, then he waved the flag. I think there should be three stages of it. You know, I think you should have a chance to wave the flag as well uh, because some of these targeting penalties aren't actually targeting. So, um, And then to jump on your second question, kick the extra point, go up by eight, and, and force them to score a touchdown and hit a two-point conversion. I mean, it puts a lot of pressure on the opposing team. If you don't, It shows me when you're doing that that you don't have confidence in your defense, which – you know, if you have confidence in your defense, you just kick the extra point goal by eight and let's, let's rock and roll. 
Yeah, I'm definitely with you there, Coach. Um, I would like to see it more like uh, actually the NBA rule where they have flagrant run and flagrant two for uh, the targeting. Um, and I think that you could um, sort of, uh, you know, have more of a differentiation between, um, you know, how in, intended the targeting was. Because sometimes, you know, there was – I forget what game I was watching uh, earlier this week, but there was a, a guy was uh, fielding a punt and got lit up um, uh, when he gave the fair catch signal. And they – That was the Georgia game. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And I think that, you know, sometimes it it's a – uh, it, it's too close to call how intentional it was, especially if you know guys move and duck down at the last second. You get instead of then instead of the defender connecting with you know shoulder to shoulder, it come, becomes shoulder to head. And I think that's you know I think a sort of a flagrant one, flagrant two situation where if you get two of them, you're not you're kicked out. Um, if you get two flagrant ones, you're kicked out. But if you get one flagrant two, you're kicked out. I think that would be um, a little bit more appropriate. But um, why? What do you think, Josh? Yeah, I just, it seemed like the point of football is to figure out who is the better team. And for Minnesota to have three players ejected, two of them linebackers, it suddenly became a question of, like, Minnesota patchworking their defense. And that wouldn't necessarily show that Minnesota is better or worse than Oregon State. And then in the Iowa game, uh, Iowa's linebacker Josie Jewell got ejected. But the Miami player was stumbling and was falling over. And so what would have been a hit to his stomach turned into a helmet-to-helmet hit because the Miami player was already halfway down. And it just seemed like it it, it makes no sense. It's such a harsh thing to eject someone when I don't think these hits are malicious anymore. I understand in the – before the targeting penalty that – if you went across the middle as a wide receiver, you could expect to get absolutely blown up. And we're not seeing that anymore. And now targeting is just kind of like these little, like, detailed things that are, are almost swinging the opposite way where it's almost too much. Yeah, I, th- I think I think you definitely make a, a good point there, Josh. But, um, well, you know, this was our first weekend of college football, and we had everything. We had upsets, overtime, blowouts, and plenty of highlights around the country. So we're going to get into it with our first section, some quick slants like we always do. And, uh, Josh, you're up first. Yeah, my quick slant is actually uh, a story that came out while we were recording our last show, so we didn't have an opportunity to do that. And that was uh, the passing of uh, D. Dois. He was an outstanding player at Air Force. He finished sixth in the Heisman in 1989. Andre Ward from Houston won it that year. But uh, he was the fifth player to run and pass for more than 1,000 yards in the season. He had 1,286 rushing yards and 18 scores and 1,285 passing yards for seven scores. Uh, so it was, it was sad to hear that uh, that he passed away in a car accident. But um, as always with when people pass away, it kind of lets us have a moment re- of reflection. And uh, D. Dallas, phenomenal career. And obviously he played for the Hall of Fame coach, Fisher DeBerry, who really showed that small schools could use the option because uh, in the 80s the option had kind of become something that Oklahoma and Nebraska did, and that was about it. But uh, whereas the rest of the WAC was doing air raid, Air Force decided, hey, we'll chip block, 
it doesn't matter that we're small, we'll still find a way to use the triple option. Now we see a lot of uh, small schools utilizing some of those schemes, Army, Navy, Air Force still does, Tulane with Willie Fritz, Georgia Southern, and obviously Paul Johnson. So, um, Appalachian State used a lot of it yeah. Thursday, too. Yeah, so, uh, you know, sad, sad that Dallas had to pass away for us to remember him and Fisher to Barry, but uh, worth mentioning. Well, I'll go, in, I'll go in chronological order here with my quick slants, and uh, I'll use that as a perfect segue um, to talking about uh, Tennessee and Appalachian State. Now, Tennessee coming into the season, a lot of promise with the Volunteers. You know, they're favorites to win the East. You know, they're dark horse favorites to win the conference. You know, they're supposed to do big things here. They came out flat. They came out, and they and Appalachian State, like we thought, they had a chance of doing, like we talked about on this podcast, Appalachian State is not a team you can you can sleep on, and they, they really proved it. In this game, stats don't matter. But uh, but uh, it's, you know, just one of those games that you looked at and just saw that, you know, it, it was just total domination up front. Both, both sides of the ball, Appalachian State was dominating. They were creating a new line of scrimmage, establishing a new line of scrimmage on defense with, with Tennessee on offense. And Tennessee couldn't get anything going there. And when they did, it seemed like they would always shoot themselves in the foot, even when, when they started having positive plays. So they kind of negated that. Offensively for Happy State, you know, they just they had a perfect game plan. They utilized option. Cox uh, was was tremendous at running back. And it just seemed like he had a lot of room to run on a lot of plays. They, they, they established an option game that I didn't think that they had, but they were tremendous at it. And they just um, – the one thing I'll say poorly about Appalachian State is I don't know that they ever planned on being in that position. So uh, I don't know that they exactly do what to do with themselves. And, and, and the thing I want to talk about really and focus on is, is not necessarily how uh, Appalachian State almost won because they, you know, they dominated every, every aspect of the game except the end of it, which – you know, there was a couple of questionable things. Uh, I feel bad for their kicker. He he had a rough night. Probably could have uh, helped in that victory. Uh, but even though even though even though he struggled, they still had a chance at the end to win it. They were tied up. They throw a ill-advised screen pass. They mismanaged the clock completely, and they let 30 seconds burn off the clock. And they were sitting on a timeout, which is to me is inexcusable. And then uh, of course not being able to dive on a on a gift uh, that Tennessee gives you in overtime that would have that would have won the game for you. So, you know, Tennessee, they've got a lot of holes to fill. Offensive, defensive lines is where you got to start with that bunch. And, you know, they got exposed. And maybe they're not as good as we thought. Maybe they were looking ahead. I don't know. We'll see this week against Virginia Tech in the battle for Bristol. Yeah, that's definitely going to be one of the marquee games of this coming weekend. Week two does not have nearly as many good matchups as week one did. But my first slant is I'm going to go back to Friday night uh, on the farm at Stanford. And I was really impressed with the Cardinal. They are breaking in three new offensive linemen, new quarterback, and they had a solid, if unspectacular, win 
over the Kansas State Wildcats, 26-13. to uh, Heisman Trophy favorite Christian McCaffrey had 210 total yards and two touchdowns in what was a very methodical win, I thought, over a you know pretty stingy K-State defense. Uh, Ryan Burns got the start behind center for the Cardinal, and he went 14 of 18 with 156 yards and one touchdown, but more importantly, no picks. Stanford had one lost fumble in the game, but besides that, they managed to keep the ball and just have some very long, um, solid drives that, you know, ate a lot of time off of the clock. The most exciting uh, play of the game, though, was actually one that got called back was a 97-yard punt return for a touchdown by McCaffrey. He fielded the ball on his own on his own three, which you never do if you're a punt returner. But he did it and uh, sprung it, you know, made a couple guys miss and just bolted down the sideline, but got called back for a legal block in the back on um, another one of the uh, guys on the Stanford uh, team, Curtis Robinson. It was, uh, but that was probably the most exciting play of the game. But um, I was, you know, I was very impressed with the revamped Stanford offensive line, which is completely different than uh one of the teams I'll be talking about in my second quick slant. But I thought uh, as a new unit, they looked really great uh, in their first game. Uh, K-State, on the other hand, really struggled with, with consistency on offense. It didn't help that Jesse Ertz, their starting quarterback, got knocked out of the game in the third quarter uh, for a couple of series. He was back at, uh, at the end of the game to throw a late touchdown pass. But in the Big 12, you know, it's going to be really tough sledding ahead for K-State because – uh, in that league, you have to score a ton of points to keep up with the Oklahomas, TCUs, and Baylors of the world. So, you know, this obviously was going to be an uphill battle to begin with. And, uh, you know, the line on this game was, uh, I believe, 15 points and uh, ended up being a 13-point victory for Stanford. So Vegas Ozmakers had it, you know, pretty much right at home. But, you know, going forward, I think that this is a good start for Stanford. But if Christian McCaffrey is going to win the Heisman this year, he's going to need more than 210 yards a game to do that. He needs to be up in the 250-260 total yards per game uh, and probably three touchdowns a game if he's going to win the Heisman. And for K-State, you know, I think it's going to be a long season, and I'm not really not sure that they have the horses to compete with the rest of the Big 12 on offense. Obviously, their defense is very solid, but there's only so much you can do without a consistent play behind behind center and with uh, your, you know, your running game. So, uh, Josh, what have you got for your second slant? Well, I've got four teams that impressed me, and I want to start by saying that if we're going to rag on teams for losing to FCS opponents or rag on teams for, for losing their opener, let's go the opposite way and talk about four bowl-starved teams. UNLV was in a bowl game in 2014, but really have fallen off the ledge pretty quickly and already had a coaching change since that game. Uh, but Tony Sanchez slowly rebuilding in only his second year, and they waxed Jackson State 63-13. That's a nice way to start your year. Eastern Michigan, the laughing stock of the MAC, they've been down for an eternity. They've only got one bowl appearance in their program history way back in 1987, and they got off to a nice start. Again, it was Mississippi State. It was the Delta Devils. It's still a long season, but – 61 to 14 has to make you feel pretty good about yourself. And 1 0 is way, way better than, say, what Kentucky did. Uh, over at West Point, Army was in a bowl game in 2010, but 
Um, it feels like an eternity ago since that game. And really since their magical 1996 season, they've been pretty bad. And they had a delightful, delightful win at Temple, 28-13. Their option attack was great. We thought Jeff Munkin had something brewing there. And they clearly put it all together against Temple. They got Rice next, so there's a good chance they'll be 2-0. and and last but not least, the one that struck me the most, uh, Colorado hasn't been in a bowl since 2007. They haven't won a bowl game since 04, and that's kind of an eternity for a Power 5 team, but they really took it to the fight in Bobos. Uh, Colorado State had a lot of players graduate, some go to the pros, et cetera. Um, but 44-7 to was not on our radar. Colorado looked great. That defense, Jim Levitt, was clicking. And the offense, which has really been sputtering, which was a surprise because Mike McIntyre is a pretty good offensive coach, finally looked like they had some competence on that side of the ball. They get Idaho State next, so another team to really look out for. Part 2-0, and well done by the Buffs. Well, uh, mine goes to Saturday night uh, down at the Plains, Auburn. Auburn Clemson matchup. It was uh, it was one that I, I was thinking had a potential to be a blowout in Clemson's favor, um, but I'll tell you what really surprised me was Auburn's defense and uh, what what the game plan they had going there. I mean they they were able to uh, aside from the big night that Mike Williams had. Uh, welcome back, Mike Williams. Uh, besides the big night that he had, I think they generally shut down everybody else, and uh, they looked like. What, what an Auburn defense should look like. And, and they, they've got guys making plays all over the place. Uh, you know, Kevin Steele did a tremendous job against his old coach, and maybe that was just a kind of a chip-on-the-shoulder game uh, to kind of prove to everybody that he is, can be a good defensive coordinator. And, and he had a good game plan against Deshaun Watson. Now, Deshaun Watson, uh, despite all those tough conditions, I think a lesser quarterback would have lost that game. Uh, I think Deshaun Watson did a tremendous job holding all that stuff together, leading his team, keeping his poise, and then just, you know, methodically winning that game. Now, the uh, the questionable deal, um, or actually really the boneheaded play of the night that had me kind of scratching my head was, um, I believe it was, I believe it was Deion Kane, maybe. Um, I can't remember exactly who it was. The name escapes me. Um, at this point, I've had a lot going on the last few days, so uh, the name kind of escapes me. But uh, Clemson had a player; it was, was on third down, and they ran they ran outside zone play. And really, all he had to do was just get tackled in bounds. That's all he had to do: get tackled in bounds. Well, he ends up stepping out of bounds and forcing Clemson to go for it on fourth down, and um, or forcing him with the decision on whether or not to kick the field goal, go for it, whatever. Um, I really could have put Clemson in danger of losing that game, but uh, Clemson got the win. They came out one zero. Well, the thing that worries me about Auburn uh, mostly from this game is that their lack of quarterback. You know, they have three guys at quarterback, and I don't think he, I don't think any one of the three can really function in this offense. You know, you have Sean White, who uh, is not an Olympic gold medalist, but he can uh, he can't function in this offense. I think he's kind of a fish out of water. He doesn't do what Gus Malzahn offense intends a quarterback to do. John Franklin has all the tools, um, except between the ears. He's having trouble remembering what to do, remembering the plays, knowing the system, knowing the checks, all that good stuff. 
Um, and then you have Jeremy Johnson, who proved in every single game last year that he couldn't get it done and, and hasn't proved differently so far this year. So they've got a situation at quarterback where they need to find some answers. Um, but I think if they can, good enough to carry him. And uh, Auburn could be, if they can find, that, find out uh, an answer to the quarterback situation, they could be a dangerous team. But it was a good, it was a good game to watch um, if you're a fan of defense. Yeah, well, uh, you know, uh, my third quick slant is going to go look at the UCLA-Texas A&M game. Texas A&M won 31-24 in overtime, but it was a really sloppy game all around, and it was a miracle that the Bruins even got it to overtime as they needed a, a, you know, a desperation heave from Chosen Rose and even to get the tying touchdown late in the fourth quarter. Honestly, the UCLA offensive line was downright offensive. It, you know, they were also breaking some new starters like Stanford was, but they had no cohesion whatsoever. It looked like they, you know, it was, looked like it was five guys who just met each other earlier that day and were trying to play football together. They gave up five sacks and only averaged 3.1 yards per carry on the ground, even though they have super talented Soso Jamabo in the backfield. Uh, you know, they just, they looked terrible. The offensive line was, you know, really bad. And you have to give some of the credit to Texas A&M's D-line, led by Miles Garrett. Um, and he was harassing Rosen all day. Uh, so the whole D-line was, you know, they led to Rosen throwing three first half picks as well. They were just continually pressuring him. I think I read that they had on top of the five sacks, 15 more uh, quarterback hurries. So, uh, you know, the UCLA offensive line has a lot of work to do. If they are going to be competitive in the Pac-12, I pick them to make the playoffs. So my pick is not looking very good uh, early on this year. It was a really poor showing overall by Jim Moore Jr.'s crew, which, you know, unfortunately has become sort of a growing reputation for this team to come up short in big games. On the flip side, Kevin Sumlin can definitely breathe a little bit easier today with a big non-conference win, but he still has a long way to go before he's off the hot seat in College Station. I was really impressed with Trevor Knight's uh, debut in uh, as an Aggie. Uh, he and a fellow former Sooner running back Keith Ford led a very balanced attack for Texas A&M that had uh, over 200 yards on the ground and over 200 yards in the air. And, you know, Knight did have one, uh, one interception, but overall I thought he played uh, very efficiently. And at least for the year now, uh, after losing um, – you know, a couple quarterbacks to transfer. It looks like that that position should be settled for the Aggies uh, for the coming season. And, it, you know, it's also nice to see Trevor Knight back. Um, uh, you know, I know that Katy Perry is probably very happy about that as well. But, um, you, you know, <laughs> I, I was – you know, it, it's disappointing as someone who, you know, who was really high on the Bruins to – see them just, you know, fall really honestly flat on their face in, in this first game. It was it, it was a terrible, terrible showing. And, you know, you've got to be worried if you're a Bruin fan uh, for going forward. Luckily, it's a non-conference game. They can still obviously run the table in conference, but their work uh, is definitely going to be cut out for them going forward. So um, with that, we are going to move on to our – uh, you know, our, our bigger breakdowns for the games for the weekend. So, um, 
we will start with probably uh, the biggest victory in in uh, of the weekend was Houston over Oklahoma in dominant fashion, thirty three to twenty three. But the, the game was quite frankly not even as close as the score indicated. So, uh, Josh, what was uh, what was Tom Herman and this Houston team able to do to you know really put it on Oklahoma? They shredded the Oklahoma secondary. It was pretty simple. They started early and often. Greg Ward, 23 of 30, 321, two touchdowns, zero interceptions. That's what you like to see. Uh, And as marvelous as Houston was, let's talk about, at least from my perspective, what the hell was Oklahoma doing? I realized Samadre Pirine went out with injury, but Joe Mixon, only six carries. You've got to be balanced. And worse, it was kind of a breakdown of Oklahoma's own doing. So despite being shredded and having a pretty bad first half, they were holding Houston to field goals. So it was only 19 17 at the break. And then to start the third quarter, Oklahoma had its best defensive performance in a while for that game. They forced a three and out to Houston punts. And then Oklahoma has an all right drive, but it falters and they get a sack to lead to a, a second and 16. And then they, throw a pass that results in a loss of two yards and an incomplete pass on third down. And rather than do the smart thing of, hey, our defense finally seems like they woke up, we've been holding them to field goals, let's do the smart thing. No, big game Bob has to do his Nick Saban impersonation and try a 53-yard kick. We know what happened. It blew the game wide open and – Really, I don't know what in the world he's thinking in that situation. Yeah, I mean, it went from being a great game between two great teams. See me, I'm a huge, huge believer in Houston now. Uh, as long as Tom Herman is there, I'm a believer in what they're doing. I, you know, that that team, you know, they they look like a Power Five school out there, and they're not. They look like a Power Five school lining up against Oklahoma. They look like they belong in the Big 12, and they should be. Um, you know, Ed Oliver, just an absolute beast on the interior. Yeah, Coach. I thought coach, at the- I'm going to interrupt you there because Ed Oliver is what really caught my eye in that game. He was dominant, as dominant a performance you'll see from a true freshman, especially on the interior of a defensive line. You think of you, – you, know, you think of – Big O lineman, D lineman, as guys who need a couple years in the programs usually to really get their strength and conditioning up for that game. He was an absolute animal. He was terrorizing Oklahoma's offensive line. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't, you know, and, and part of my breakdown, part of my analysis of the game was I thought that Oklahoma's, you know, I thought they were going to wear down uh, Houston's defensive front and, and end up just beating them into submission, and they went away from that. And I think that that's where the problem lies. And Ed Oliver helped keep Houston alive in that, and they just slowly started started uh, gaining momentum, gaining momentum. And then, then after that after that uh, field goal return for a touchdown, 
Houston blew the doors wide open, and there was nothing Oklahoma could do about it. And uh, you know, I was thoroughly impressed, especially with the with the talent they had up front um, on both sides of the ball. I mean, I, I think this game, uh, I think Houston's big guys really helped them win this game, and they turned that from a question mark to a strength. Yeah, definitely. It was a very, very solid all-around performance from Houston. And, that, and it doesn't hurt that you have Greg Ward Jr. either. No, but that kick six uh, was – that was the highlight. That was probably the highlight of the game for me. That that was a phenomenal return. Um, and well, if we're going to talk about – if we're going to talk about the special teams, though, too, uh, Houston's kicker had himself a day. He did. Yeah. Uh, Ty Cummings, four of four, field goal. Long of 47, three of three extra points. When your kicker gets you 15 points, I feel like you're going to win. I don't know what the uh, the breakdown of that is, but I think if your kicker accounts for more than two touchdowns, you're feeling pretty good about your day. Yeah, definitely. It was, you know, just, just a great showing all around. And, you know, th- you know they are they're here to stay. They, they're here to play with the big boys. And, they are gonna, you know, if, if they run the table, they are. They have definitely proved that they deserve to be in the playoff conversation. But one team that will definitely not be making the playoff now, probably, is the LSU Bayou Bengals. Uh, Wisconsin outgained LSU three thirty nine to two fifty seven in a sixteen to fourteen victory at the frozen tundra of Lambeau Field, and uh, you know Wisconsin pulled off a big, big upset here. And one of the big reasons for it was that they, uh, you know, they had a, uh, you know, a 14-minute ad- advantage in terms of time of possession, 37 minutes to 23 minutes. And this was a really great victory for the Badgers. Uh, kicker uh, Rafael Gaglianone, who, uh, you know, speaking of kickers, he himself had uh, 11 points and was, uh, you know, instrumental in, uh, in in this victory, ended up winning Big Ten Special Teams Player of the Week. Uh, but Josh, you know, how did the Badgers manage to stifle uh, to stifle you know Leonard Fournette and the rest of those super talented LSU players? Well, they have arguably the best front seven in the conference, and that might surprise some people because you have Ohio State's talent, you think of Michigan's talent, but. Wisconsin was the number one defense in the entire country a year ago and returned a lot of those pieces. Um, you know, I, it's, I don't want to toot my own horn and like, oh, ESPN, automatic video loading, come on. But, no, I don't want to, like, toot our own horn and, like, pat ourselves on the back. But all three of us said this was going to be a close game. And Wisconsin making it competitive wasn't a surprise. Granted, pulling out the victory on a, a long field goal by somebody who has gotten better, but he's had some inconsistencies as well, uh, was a surprise to me. But when it comes to LSU with Cam Cameron and a terrible quarterback, they're going to look like this more often than not. And they're not going to beat Alabama this year. They're not going to beat teams with good defenses because they don't have a quarterback. It's that simple. And one other thing that I wanted to say when you mentioned Gaglione was – um, it was really cool. He's wearing number 27 in honor of Nebraska's Sam Fultz. And I thought that was really interesting that the, I didn't even know that those two guys were really good friends. But as soon as I saw him in 27, I was like, that's a little different. Googled it, and I realized why. I thought that was pretty cool. But, yeah, LSU is 
tremendously overrated. I'm not saying the SEC is overrated. I'm not going to be a home, that much of a homer. But I never thought LSU was the fifth-ranked team in the country. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. When you have that many holes at quarterback, you know, and I thought Alabama had the same. And we'll get into that here in just a minute. But uh, I, I was just thoroughly disappointed in, in, in what they had. I mean, you know, it's just you, know, you, you look at a fifth-ranked team in the country and a going up against an unranked team. And, you know, you knew the game was going to be close for a little while. And I thought depth was going to kind of wear on wear down Wisconsin. I thought that was going to be the difference in the game. Um, it ended up going the other way. I mean, it ended up being that, you know, I, I think as the game wore on, Wisconsin started believing that they had more of a chance. Each and every each and every series, they're like, oh, we got a chance to win this thing. Oh, we got a chance to win this thing. And it just built on itself. And and that was just a team that wanted to win that ball game, needed to win that ball game, and they went out and got it done. And, and you know, I was flipping back and forth between it. I watched a lot of it early on, but, you know, once the Georgia game started out, I'll be honest, I was watching that uh, pretty heavily. But I kept checking back on it thinking, you know, okay, well, here, here we go. LSU scored. Now the floodgates are going to open. Dang, I hate, I hate that for Wisconsin because they probably, they're probably fighting hard. But, no, I mean, their defense is still in their just did a tremendous job. And, 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 uh, and you know, sometimes, you know, we like to hammer on the team that should have won and should have probably won by, you know, 10 points or so. We hammer on them for being disappointing, but why not, why not give Wisconsin a pat on the back and say, man, that was a great job, a tremendous game plan. They fought hard all the way. And, you know, you're starting to see this team that with a, with a healthy Corey Clement, they can do something. They can, they could potentially make some noise in the Big Ten if they can keep that up week in and week out. Now, we'll see throughout the course of the Big Ten schedule how much depth they have, or I'll say how much quality depth that they have, um, because you're going to get some guys banged up along the way. That's just kind of what happens in the sport of football. But um, we'll, we'll see what they've got. But Well, know, yeah, Coach, I'll I'll this week, going, tremendous going, off, going off of that, uh, what you said about depth, Wisconsin's linebacker depth was tested, uh, offensive line and linebacker depth was tested immediately. First player of the game, starting linebacker Chris Orr goes out, tears his ACL, he's out for the year. They already had their other starting inside linebacker out for the first couple of weeks with a broken foot, TJ Edwards. So they're starting two reserve inside linebackers. And, uh, you know, their starting guard, Micah Kapoy, also got injured. He was seen in a walking boot on the sideline for the rest of the game. And this is after they already lost their starting guard, All-American, um, uh, Volts, who uh, had to retire because of injuries. So, you know, that was even more impressive. Ryan Connolly, who replaced Chris Orr, was an animal. He led the team in tackles with eight, including a couple tackles for a loss. And on one, one third down screen to Leonard Fournette, he just completely blew it up and prevented them from getting the first down. And he was an absolute animal on the field. So, you know, that Wisconsin death is going to be tested. But if you're a Badger fan, you've got to feel, you know, pretty good about it going forward. So moving on, uh, I want to get through this game really quickly. Alabama just, you know, blew the Doors off of USC uh, uh, in a in a in a final of fifty two to three uh, in the battle for Lane Kiffin, and it was you know a complete shellacking. But going into the game, I predicted that this is going to be a big game for wide receivers Calvin Ridley and Juju Smith Schuster. Well, they each had nine yards. So, Josh, how did Al- what did Alabama do to just dismantle the Trojans? Well, Alabama's better at pretty much every position. 
outside of quarterback, but USC couldn't take advantage of that because USC was also replacing their quarterback. So that was kind of a wash. And in our preview, we all thought that USC would maybe make it interesting for the first half and then Alabama would pull away. And I remember stressing that USC needed to continue running the ball. That's the identity they wanted to have. And their starting running back, Ronald Jones II, had almost 1,000 yards a year ago, had seven carries. That's not going to cut it. And I realize that you're not going to run for a lot of yards against Alabama, but you can't have a kid making his first start throw the ball 30 times and expect to be competitive. Hats off to Alabama. They thoroughly outclassed them. But I don't think SC put them in, themselves in the greatest position by, as soon as they had some adversity, completely freaking out and no longer running the ball. Yeah, I mean, I've never seen a team just abandon a game plan so fast. It got to a point where I just felt bad for them and switched the channel. But, uh, I mean, it, Alabama found themselves a quarterback. Say that much. Um, yeah, and it was it was the guy that we did not think it was going to be. No, not even close. Like I mean, he wasn't even on my radar. And then uh, you know, I think what also Alabama did a good job is making sure our Darius got to the ballpark on time and had a had a uh, uniform with his name on it. And uh, man, did he ball out too? But I mean, I, I've just never seen a team that had so many pieces to replace replace them and look even better. I mean, it was. Unbelievable, and and what's uh, also funny, uh, and it's funny that this game analysis is, is really made to this comment that I'm about to make. But uh, Jalen Hurts looks, he wears number two and has the same exact dreads as Derrick Henry. He's just a little bit skinnier version of Derrick Henry. You know, you look at him; he has the same hair color, same hairstyle with the with the braided. Uh, ponytail dreads hanging out the back of his helmet sticking straight out at a 90 degree angle and he wears number two that kind of that kind of made me made me laugh for a second but um you know otherwise i mean it was just a shellacking and usc panic they've probably never been beaten like that before and really haven't i think this i think it's the worst loss since 1966 or something uh this is that i saw and uh man i just alabama put on a click that's all i could really say about it they put on a clinic yeah, I mean, you know, we, we talked going to the game about the, the battle between Alabama's D-line and USC's O-line, and I thought, you know, USC has one of the best O-lines in the country. Well, they averaged 2.1 yards per carry. I mean... They got whipped. They, they got dominated. They got their... They absolutely got their butts handed to them by a, you know, a, a much more talented, much more aggressive team. And, um, you know, we all thought it was going to be Bo Scarborough going to be the, back in the big yards, but it was Damian Harris. Damian Harris was an absolute beast. Uh, uh, nine carries for 138 yards. I mean, shoot, you're not going to do much better than that. So uh, let's move on, though, Coach, to your alma mater, and uh, who is Kirby Smart's first game. Uh, You know, Georgia has a nice win over uh, University of North Carolina, a battle of top 25 teams. So, uh, Coach, what what, did you take away from this game? Well, I took away a lot of stuff from this game because a lot lot of different things happened. one thing I took away is T.J. Logan for North Carolina is a tremendous football player. Um, he's a backup. He's, he's Elijah Hood's backup. I thought he outperformed Elijah Hood on this day. 
um, which is usually you don't usually hear that. Had a had an electrifying 95-yard kick return to open the second half. Um, I thought Mitch Trubisky did a tremendous job at the quarterback position. Uh, guy that we we had our doubts on, but honestly, we didn't know a whole lot about him, so I didn't really know what to expect. But you know, I didn't expect a whole lot out of him. Uh, I thought he had a tremendous game. I thought North Carolina's defense at times um, had a had a great ball game, but at other times looked like that they couldn't uh, they couldn't function. Uh, one thing I was impressed with was Georgia's ability to run the ball, even against the stacked box. Nick Chubb goes for 220 yards in his first game after completely shredding his knee um, at the uh, at the beginning of October a year ago. Um, very thoroughly impressed with with the way the freshman, true freshman Bryce Harrion came in uh, and just lit it up at the tailback position. I think I believe he had over 100 yards as well, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Um, the quarterback situation played out exactly as I thought it was going to. Uh, Grayson Lambert looked okay, uh, looked decent, but wasn't the guy. And you could tell by the way the others played around him. I think that the other guys, when Jacob Beeson was in there, I felt like they were making more plays for him. They were playing harder for him. It, it just seemed like they believed in him more more so, and, and uh, my goodness, he made a big league throw there at the end um, to uh, to set up the, the go ahead touchdown. So I was uh, I, I was impressed thoroughly with Jacob Beeson. I thought he grew up a lot in that game. I thought there was times where he looked like a freshman, um, but I thought he grew up a lot throughout the course of that ball game. Um, and at the point where North Carolina went up by ten. Is, is the point where a lot of Georgia fans were like, oh, God, here we go again. You know, that that's the point where uh, the last three years this Georgia team would have folded up tent, lost by about 24 points, and uh, just trying to look for answers. But this team fought hard. This defense was uh, flying around the football. A lot of no-name guys that you don't that you didn't know what you were going to get out of them flew around, made a, made a lot of plays, made plays when they counted. You know, there was times where North Carolina did a good job and got some yards on them and, you know, put the ball in the end zone a few times. But, you know, this defense did a good job when it had to. This whole team did a great job when they had to. And and uh, I'll even give props to North Carolina. It was a – North Carolina did not – well, they did not lose this game, I don't think. I, I think Georgia just came out and, and beat a very good North Carolina team. And I may be giving North Carolina a little bit more credit um, – Outside of a few plays where they shot themselves in the foot, I thought they had a tremendous game as well. Coach, is Jacob Eason the quarterback against Nickel State this weekend? He better be. Um, I don't see any reason he won't be. All right. Josh, anything to add? Well, I'm going to translate some of what Coach said because uh, Corey and I do a very similar thing. We like to be humble. When Iowa, like, if we were talking about the Iowa game, I would give Miami of Ohio some praise. But since I don't have to worry about jinxing Georgia, let me tell you what Coach really wanted to say, and that is North Carolina coaches were really dumb. They ran, they ran Elijah Hood only 10 times. and 19 carries as a team, that counts three from their quarterback. They had a guy making his first start throw 40 passes. That doesn't make any sense. And one of those 40 passes – was a screen pass from their own end zone resulted in a safety. Uh, that, was, that was my favorite play. I'll, I'll loosen up a little bit and say that was my favorite play in the ball game. I was like, what are they doing? Like that, that was one of the head scratchers, but go ahead. Uh, so it was a nice 
win by Georgia. But North Carolina just did not put themselves in a position to succeed with some boneheaded mistakes. Uh, Georgia was the better team. And Nick Chubb going off for 222 on 32 carries. Like, Elijah Hood has that talent. TJ Logan looks like he might have that talent. But you don't really know when the two of them combined for 16 carries, exactly half of what Chubb ran for. And this thing wasn't a blowout. Why do you only have 10 carries? Makes no sense. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I, what, the thing that surprised me most about this game was the lack of Georgia using their tight ends. Tight ends had one catch for one yard, and that was Charlie Warner. So I, I, expect, a lot, I expect a lot more out of the Georgia tight ends going forward. It was an extremely conservative game, I think, and they did that by design to kind of ease the kid in there. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, I think you'll see it open up a lot more now that they're comfortable with what Easton can do. All right. Well, the most exciting game of the weekend had to have been Sunday night's contest uh, in Austin with Texas outlasting Notre Dame um, in what was, I mean, I, I can't remember a more exciting game in a very long time. 50 to 47, double overtime. Texas wins. Uh, uh, Tyrone Swoops doing his uh, best Vince Young impersonation. Man, there, there are so many things to go off of here. Uh, so, but, you know, Notre Dame ended up starting with Deshaun Kaiser, which we all thought was the right idea. So, Josh, you know, what happened here to Notre Dame's defense? Well, you know, after, after tons of football on Saturday, I was a little football down, so I didn't watch. Um, <laughs> no, the uh, – let's start with the positive. Notre Dame has a really good offense, and they proved that. They had 37 points in regulation. They had a little bit of a mistake – on offense, they played Malik Zaire too much. I would have not even had him on the field. I think that disrupted them a little bit. Zaire, I think, even had a possession in the second half. That was a little silly. So that a little bit of a questionable coaching decision there by Brian Kelly. But their defense, um, you know, Redmond being dismissed. They had another defensive back suspended. They got exposed. They got shredded. And uh, Shane... Bouchelet, whatever. Bouchelle. Bouchelle. I, I'm consistent at never getting any name right. Um, he was an early enrollee, and you could see that paying off because he did not look like a freshman at all. He looked really poised. And you brought in swoops, and I think this is my favorite thing. So I've got the stats up. So uh, Shane went 16 of 26, 280. Two touchdowns, one interception, a QBR of 83.1. Swoops went 0 of 1 for zero yards, zero touchdowns, zero interceptions. QBR of 89 and a half. (laughs) That's a useful statistic right there if you're going to look at quarterback ranking. But um, this this was all about Texas just utilizing their speed. Even, you know, even though they gave up their lead, there were times where the defense was just flying around and you could see Notre Dame really struggling to, to be consistent. They hit some big plays and Kaiser put them on their back, but it it felt like the better team won. And I'm sure it wasn't the way they drew it up by going to overtime, especially when they had a 17 point lead at one point. But um, 
I'm not going to say Texas is back. That's way too dramatic. It was a nice win. The crowd was in it. I thought the way they utilized the 18-wheeler formation was ingenious. I thought Desmond Howard had a great comment at the end of the game. He compared it to what Urban Meyer did with Chris Leak and Tim Tebow at the beginning of Tebow's career. It makes sense. We'll see if Texas can keep it up, but obviously they have concerns about their defense, just not as many as the Irish do. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was a brilliant game between two. You know, I, I thought Texas played over their head. Um, we'll see. It'll it'll probably even out a little bit throughout the course of their schedule. But, you know, I, I think Bouchel, did I get it right? Yes, you did. Bobby Bouchel. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I think Bouchel did a tremendous job at quarterback. You know, he, you know, again, with Josh Huth and Ellen Head, with just about everything you said, I think you and I are on the same page right now. Um, with this game especially, I, I thought he was tremendous all night long. I thought Swoops played his role perfectly. You know, I think they've got a good thing going. I, you know, I hope they keep it up. You know, they, they, you know, they, they ran the ball well. They did, they did a lot of things really well. And I think a lot of it had to do with them being at home. Um, the atmosphere of it, of a, a primetime game. You're the only show in town at the, at the moment. Um, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with some guys being suspended from Notre Dame or dismissed completely. And Notre Dame's defense has got some an- uh, questions to answer, and they've got, you know, they've got a lot of things to uh, to try to get set in stone. But they just didn't seem like they were all on the same page. And you know, and then when they finally got on the same page, they made that run, got the lead back, and then something. I, I guess just Texas just kept swinging back, swinging back, swinging back, and they weren't they weren't prepared because of what happened last year with this with this game. They weren't prepared for Texas to strike back the way they did. And, and they weren't ready to get punched in the mouth, and they didn't have a plan for when they got punched in the mouth. Um, and they weren't ready for that. They thought Texas, ah, oh, same old Texas, they're just going to lay down and fold as soon as we start playing well. And, and they didn't. So um, you saw the result of it. Yeah, you did. And it was, you know, it, it was a lot of fun to watch. Uh, just as a spectator without a horse in the race, you know, it was a it was a fabulous game to watch. And, you know, so we're recording this on Monday, so we've not had the big Ole Miss-Florida State game yet, but when we come to you later this week, we'll, we'll touch on that real quick as well as give you some previews for not quite as an exciting week two as week one, but definitely some interesting matchups, uh, you know, uh, headlined by the battle in Bristol. So uh, that's going to do it for us today here on Illegal, Illegal Motion. So on behalf of the coach, Corey Burton, and on behalf of our intrepid blogger from Big Ten and Counting, Josh Cook, This is the professor, Matt Perkins, saying so long and see you next time on the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. Is this when we make make fun of Kentucky or is that next show? Uh, You mean Kansas? No, I mean Kentucky. Well, we can make fun of both of them on next show. (laughs) At least Kansas won. Yeah, then they stormed the field after beating Rhode Island. That's, like, so pathetic. Well, you know, they didn't blow – a massive lead to their former offensive coordinator. This is true. Thanks for listening to the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. To get in touch with the show, email us at illegalmotionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at illegal underscore motion. 
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.